0: In Ecuador this summer, I was able to introduce the group to a new food group, if you will. It's called the Pizza Cone. Uh, Imagine the goodness of a pizza with all of its sausage and pepperoni and peppers and cheese, or if you're one of those people, pineapple and ham, just... Instead of it being laid out on a, a flat crust, the Pizza Cone wraps it all together in the goodness filled with with cheese. I personally witnessed one of my former church members in North Carolina eat four pizza cones in one sitting. That's an insanely delicious filled food. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, is Andy going to begin every sermon in this series talking about filled food? Yeah, I'm going to. So we're in this series where we're looking at brimming buckets, filling our lives and the lives of others with the goodness of Jesus. We're encountering Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he's calling them to fill their lives with the goodness of Christ. And each week, we're examining these qualities and looking at what it looks like to allow ourselves to be filled with this, but also in turn filling others with the goodness of Christ. And at the same time, we've issued a bucket challenge. We've giving you little mini buckets to carry with you each week. Uh, I would ask for a weekly jingle of the buckets, but that seems a little self-righteous. So let's dive into our text here from Paul in Colossians 3.12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, and humility. Uh Uh-oh. This is a fun one. If we want to really understand what Paul is talking about here, I want us to turn to another text in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 9. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Have you ever picked up a book and gotten a couple pages into it, and you thought to yourself, what am I reading? <laughs> or you start to watch a movie, and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to watch this. Anytime Jesus begins a parable by saying to those who look down upon others because of their righteousness, you're not exactly sure if you want to move forward with what he's saying next. And it's difficult to know who Jesus is speaking to in this text because in Luke chapter 17, Jesus has a conversation with both the Pharisees and the disciples. There doesn't seem to be a change in scenery, so we don't know who he's talking to. But whomever he's talking to, self-righteousness is going to be the topic. Usually, self-righteousness is described as sanctimoniousness, holier-than-thou, smug, um, piousness, moralization, and preachiness. So it says this in verse 10. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. As if Jesus didn't polarize his audience with his introduction to what he's about to say the introduction of two characters would have polarized Jesus' audience. The first, a Pharisee. The Pharisees, more than any other gospel in the gospel of Luke, seemed to be the rivals of Jesus. They weren't priest in the temple, they were actually common lay people. They believed and pursued the laws of Moses with this fiery zeal. They thought if they in their lives, and also forcing the law upon other people, then it would bring favor of God upon the nation of Israel and, and kick out those filthy Romans that were ruling the area. And so they believed that if they lived by every letter of the law and zealously pursued it in other people's lives, God would be faithful to them. You see, the Pharisees weren't necessarily hated in Jesus' day. In fact, the Pharisees were viewed in favor because they took the Bible seriously. They wanted the ruling elite who were in the beds with Rome and the puppet ruler Herod to be gone. But on the opposite end of the spectrum was the tax collector. Without a doubt, this would have been the most hated type of person in Jesus' day. A tax collector for Israel would have been an Israelite themselves, They would have had the authority of Rome on their lips, and so they're not only collecting taxes from the people, a reminder of their subjugation to this awful empire, but because they had the threat of Rome on their lips, they would be able to take a little extra something-something on the side. And so his very occupation was a, a defilement of his obligation to the one true God. He is collecting taxes for the Roman imperial system, which viewed Caesar as God. So each day of work, a tax collector was literally breaking the commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And it might have been a shock to Jesus' listeners to hear that a tax collector entered into the temple. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day and give a tenth of all I get. The gut honest reaction to the Pharisee's prayer is something like this Well, he's just thinking what we're thinking. <laughs> I mean, isn't he right? Thank goodness he's not like at least this tax collector. The Pharisee's argument here is that he sees the difference between right and wrong. He knows who is righteous and who is immoral, who is godly and who is godless. Let, let's play a little game together. I'm going to show you an image up here, and I want you to tell me who or what it represents, okay? Are you ready? Let's go to the first one. McDonald's. Some of y'all are ashamed to say McDonald's. Yeah, McDonald's. All right, the second? Batman. Batman. The third? Amazon, okay, the fourth. Well, technically, the artist formerly known as Prince, but this is when he went through his symbol phase. All right, last one. Anybody? It's Blackbeard's flag, okay. Why do we have logos? It helps us, it help us recognize a brand, whether it be a musical artist, an online retailer, a shoe company, a, a technology juggernaut, or a, resta- a restaurant that will rumble our bowels. We have logos for a reason. You see, logos help us differentiate between what we want and what we don't want. It helps us label what is good and bad, what is quality and poorly made, what's expensive and what's cheap. Logos are all about classification, and categorization. You see, the Pharisee in this story was functioning on a societal and religious form of labeling. Labels go something like this, right and wrong, godly and godless, worthy and unworthy, sinner and saint. We will give him credit because he didn't create these labels. His religion created them. His socioeconomic system created them. His political worldview created them. And what he didn't realize with his system of labeling was casting a creeping shadow into his soul because that's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness labels others in order to justify self. It's a Us versus them mentality. Oh God, I want to thank you that I'm not like these evil and appalling and godless and unworthy and disgusting sinners. Me and my kind, we are the best, not like them. But that's what self-righteousness does. It leads us to believe that we can become elevated socially and religiously and and mentally above other people. And therefore, self-righteousness within us judges other people for failing to be like us. Self-righteousness and self-righteous people tend to judge by creating categories of sins. These are the no-nos. These are the really, really bad ones. These are the people that are not welcome in God's presence. And it's not like we don't do it from our own knowledge. We do it based on our reading and interpretation of Scripture. That's what the Pharisees is doing. The Bible says see, as we hear the Pharisees' words, we have to take a closer look at not just his words, but also his posture in the story. For one, he's, he's standing. It would have been custom in Jesus' day for you to prostrate yourself in the temple as a humble act before God let alone be on your knees, but he is standing. In his very words, he's praying out loud for for everyone to hear. Jesus talked about this in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mountain. He says, do not pray like the hypocrites who stand so that all can hear your prayer. And the words, as we zero into his words, thank God I'm not like these other people. You see, he, he at the center of who he is, he believes that he is much better, he, he ties the way he's supposed to, he worships the way he's supposed to, he even fasts above and beyond what's expected of him. This is a holy man. And that's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness casts a shadow over our soul, it awakens within us an exclusionary thought, I don't need God. The Pharisee bolsters himself to the same status of God. You see, because he's done everything he possibly can, God's not really needed in his life. Because he, by his own hand, is achieving salvation by the religious acts that he commits every single week see, self-righteousness tries to exclude God because the self-righteous person's actions believe that salvation comes by their own hands. And the proof is in, his, in the pudding. I've played by the rules. I've done all the right things. And at least I'm not like these unfaithful people. See, self-righteousness is so tough and it can be identified often by our wrestlings with the teachings of Jesus in which we ignore Jesus when he calls us to things that don't go in our way of life. He really didn't mean love our enemies. He wasn't serious when he said, welcome the stranger and foreigner. He was being theoretical when he said that the outcast and the oppressed are included at the table. He was setting a bar too high when he said the tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees. You see, to fully understand the depth of the Pharisees' pride, We have to look at the end of this story in verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." If you're wondering how Jesus' audience reacted to his story, you're in luck. We actually found a couple video footages of this scene. Ron, let's see if these will actually play for us. Yep, there's one. And then I think we've got one more. (laughs) See, societally speaking, this doesn't make sense. What Jesus has done politically and religiously in this moment would have left his audience speechless. Jesus has just messed up their view of who is justified before God. What Jesus has done is taken the perspectives of religion and society and politics and turned it upside down by saying that this tax collector was more justified before God than this very religious person. I love a good plot twist to a story. Do you remember that moment where you were in Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader revealed to Luke Skywalker that he was his father? Don't you love a good plot twist? Hollywood does the best out of Vader and Skywalker. Bruce Willis, he was dead the whole time in Sixth Sense. Sorry if I spoiled that one for you. Edward Norton was just imagining Brad Pitt's character the entire time in Fight Club. Kevin Spacey, this is not a good reference now, was Kaiser Sose The entire movie you see, Jesus is doing a plot twist in this moment to cause us to reconsider how we view ourselves, how we view others, and how we view our interaction with God. Let's look at little closer at what this tax collector is doing. His posture is a posture of humility. He, he can't even look up to heaven. He is beating himself. This reminds me of the old monastic practices of, of, of self-mutilation in order to somehow feel like you're appeasing the anger and wrath of God. He is so broken in his circumstances that he doesn't even believe that he is worthy to be in the presence of God in this temple his humility shows us something so important. It shows us that the humility brings about the reality of the grace of God in our life. What justifies him is his recognition of his need for God's grace and forgiveness. His his realization is that he truly, down to the depths of who he is, needs God. You see, our humility God embraces us with grace. Humility makes the grace of God a reality. You see, God's grace is the gift of salvation and forgiveness from the moment we embrace it on through each stage of our life into eternity. God's grace is this eternal gift of redemption. It's God's grace that's a continual act of cleaning up our lives. It's accomplishing what God desires that our soul longs for. And this makes perfect sense when you think about it. If you believe that you are right and everyone else is wrong, if you believe that you have done all you can and should gain favor in God, then you can't go any further when you believe that you are God unto yourself. But when we truly sense the humility in our life, the grace of God takes our hard heart and transforms it into something else. When we embrace our inner tax collector, when we truly humble ourselves before God, God doesn't shame us and guilt us. Instead, God fills us with grace and with mercy. And as awkward as it sounds, coming before God is like stripping away everything we hide behind, our our arrogance and our pride and our self-righteousness, and it's like we're standing naked before God. And God is not there judging us and shaming us and guilting us, but instead God is clothing us with compassion. God's grace is beautiful. It's not condemnation as Jesus says but it's acceptance, it's renewal. As Brenning Manning puts in the Ragamuffin Gospel, if the church remains self-righteously aloof from its failures, its irreligiousness, its immoral people, it cannot enter into a justified kingdom of God. But if it's constantly aware of its guilt and its sin and its brokenness, it can live joyously aware of forgiveness. The promise that has been given to anyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. I've had a pretty good run in my life the last 20 years. I was a successful athlete and lettered in two sports. I dated the captain of the cheerleading squad for all four years of high school. I had really good grades in college that coasted into a master's degree. I started a new ministry on campus. I won the heart of a pretty groovy girl while I was there. I excelled in creating ministries from scratch when I was at First Baptist Church of Clayton. I started a church when I was 26 years old. I was given the reins of the fastest-growing Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Global Initiative when I was 29 years old. I created a now global podcast that has 40,000 touches per week at the age of 32. I have two beautiful and smart daughters, and now I'm the senior pastor of University Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Some of you are thinking to yourself, great, Andy. You see, all of y'all can come up here and say wonderful things about yourself as well. You see, that's the thing that we confuse about humility. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but humility is thinking about ourselves less. We often confuse that within the Christian faith that we think God wants us to believe that we are worthless not beneficial to society, failures until we can recognize just how great God is. The invitation of God is not for us to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. And humility that we begin to see the life of the Pharisee versus the life of the tax collector, not as a a piously wandering and hovering above five feet above the ground because of our righteousness. Instead, the challenging aspect of humility is that in theory it sounds great, but we have become so developed as a social species around the idea that we must always present ourselves as the best. The great Frederick Biekner put it this way, true humility does not consist in thinking ill of ourselves but not thinking of ourselves much differently from the way that we think about anyone else. Humility is recognizing our place in the universe. While we are beloved children of God, we are not only children. See, Jesus calls us forth forth to take the gifts and compassion and strength and assets and experience and wisdom and success of the kingdom of God that he has placed within us but to not always think of ourselves as the best among all of God's people. Or as Paul wrote in Romans, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith of God that has been distributed to each of you. In the Gospel of John chapter 13, Jesus does this unthinkable thing. Instead of having a servant or one of those really annoying disciples Wash all the feet of his followers. The Son of God got down on his hands and knees. He put a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And taking each of the feet of the disciples, he cleaned between their toes and their chapped heels. Let's not forget that people wore sandals in this day and age. They walked around in the dirt and the grime and the filth and the bacteria on the road Yet Jesus washed each one of their feet. He washed Thomas' feet, who would doubt his coming resurrection. He washed James and John's feet, the sons of Zebedee who so self-righteously fought over who could sit next to him in the kingdom of heaven. He comes to Peter, who so famously would deny that he knows Jesus and Peter doesn't understand it. He, he doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet, but then he doesn't even get any more because he asked Jesus to wash his entire body instead. And Jesus also comes to Judas Iscariot, who would commit the most despicable act in human history. Jesus washed his feet as well. You see, what Jesus teaches us through this moment, what he teaches us throughout three years of ministry is that humility emboldens others to experience the radical presence of God. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the incarnation of the living God. Each person that Jesus touched and healed and served was transformed. They became the best person they could be because of God's love and empowerment to them. And when you and I take on the nature of Jesus, when we become humble servants, we too are bringing people into the presence of God. When when our order is wrong and we instead have patience instead of entitlement, when we seek to put others before ourselves, we are emboldening others to experience the radical presence of God when we intentionally look to find ways to make others feel beloved and affirmed, when we are willing to act and to volunteer so that others can experience relief and rest, when we are giving of ourselves to the enhancement of others, we are emboldening others to experience the radical presence of God when we look beyond the easy ways to serve others and seek to find systematic changes of the discomfort and inequality of our neighbors, we are emboldening the image and the presence and radical presence of God within people's lives. When we look beyond what is easy and look to do what is difficult, we are emboldening others to experience the radical presence of God. When we do not wait for opportunities to come to us, proactively seek ways to care for others, we are emboldening others to experience the radical presence of God. Every day, you and I carry around a bucket. It's the bucket of our lives. We either choose to fill it up or to empty it. We either choose to fill up others or to empty their lives. Jesus is inviting us through this powerful parable to rethink what is in our bucket. Our bucket could be filled with pride and self-righteousness and resentment, but Jesus is inviting us to fill our buckets with humility that comes from God's bountiful love for us. As you carry a bucket with you this week, consider how you might be filled with the humility of Christ. So look to the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ, which emboldens us to know of God's love for us. As you carry your bucket this week, consider how you might fill the buckets of your neighbors and coworkers and strangers and people very different from you through your acts of humility.